more to come. PW Comics World's podcast, a comics and graphic novel news, recorded today from my home office here. I'm Heidi McDonald, uh, the editor-in-chief of The Beat and a long-time More to Come co-host. And today I am talking to Jason Sachs, uh, who has just written a book called, uh, I'm actually looking, it's got a long title, uh, The American Comic Book Chronicles, the 90s. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Heidi. Um, so, Jason, in addition to uh, you being an author of a book, you and I are also kind of compadres from the comics journalism trenches as well, aren't we? We have. We've gone through the wars. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I want to touch on that a little bit. But, uh, you know, the book is published by Two Morrows, which, of course, puts out a lot of uh, um, comics, you know, books about comics, historical. But but uh, tell us a little bit about the series and the book and, and what it covers. Yeah, the American Comic Book Chronicles is a decade-by-decade history of the American comic book industry. Um, we have about six volumes out covering everything from the 1950s to the 1990s, and there's actually two more volumes coming about the 1940s. Um, the first one should be out, I believe, uh, first half of next year. But I was delighted to write the 90s book, um, being a big fan of the decade, and digging into it in detail has been one of the most interesting professional experiences of my life, as well as just kind of renewing my love for some of the craziness of that decade. Yeah, well, it was a formative time for comics, so for sure. I mean, certainly in the direct market, you know, it went from triumph to tragedy. Um, you know, the decade <laughs> started out, and, you know, uh, really hot with the biggest selling comics of, you know, since the comics code. And then it ended in the darkest dregs of the American comics industry. It's incredible. So at the beginning of the decade, the the industry was selling about 10 million comics per month. Uh Uh, The month of the return of Superman, we sold 48 million copies, five times as much. And then by the end of the decade, we were selling 7 million copies, December wow. 1999. So we were actually lower than we were in January 1990 by December 1999. Now, you could argue, are we were we healthier then? Were the graphic novels and everything else proceeding? Um, in a way, it was kind of the darkness before the dawn because 1999 was right before X-Men and Spider-Man came out and we saw a big revival of love for comics. But uh, the 90s, on the whole, was just a crazy, tumultuous decade. Yeah, and I mean, you kind of, like in the book, it's it's a decade by day, de- or excuse me, year by year breakdown. You talk a lot about, um, you know, the books that came out, you know, cover some of the storylines, some of the major players. I mean, you know, I'm not going to, you, you don't go into too much of the dirt. Let's put it that way. But, um, you know, some, most of which I was there for. So, you know, uh, ask me about it at Barcon. But, um, yeah, what do you think? I, I mean, the 90s comics, you know, I mean, we're going through 90s nostalgia now. So we're beginning to see mm-hmm. people talk about, uh, co- you know, 90s comics in a more positive way now. But for quite a while, I would say if you brought up 90s comics, uh, a lot of people just had nothing good to say about them. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Well, yeah, because it's the decade, just like we think of the 90s as a decade of big hair and uh, grunge music, you know, the 90s are kind of this decade where we had hollow foil com- covers and comics were selling in the crazy amounts and there were massive uh, booms in the collector industry. Uh, you know, uh, the first issue of Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man sold an insane 8 million copies. Um, there was a point in time when 
every comic was selling over a million copies a month, and they were all enhanced in some ways, whether it was a hollow foil cover or some um, fancy slick uh, crossover was part of. So part of it is like people are just kind of thinking of it in the same way that they think of uh, just this kind of weird era that the industry passed through. And there were a lot of strangenesses that happened. It was a very trendy era, for example. Uh, in the ni- 1993, there were something like 40 new comics companies or imprints created. Uh, 1997, there was something like 50-some different intercompany crossovers. It was just super, like, fashionable or oriented. But at the same time, there were many great comics that came out in the 90s, whether it's, like, graphic novels like Stuck Rubber Baby or The Debut of Bone or um, The Golden Age, wherever your your heart may be, or mainstream books like Mark Wade's Flash or Marvel's or the early early Valiant comics are fantastic. Um, Grant Morrison's Justice League, I think, is a classic. So, I mean, there's a lot of great material mixed in with a lot of the kind of stuff you find for uh, 25-cent bins at the local conventions. Mm, right, right. Now, what were you doing in the 90s? <laughs> Actually, I was uh, busy raising children mostly. <laughs> Um, but, um, I was always fascinated, particularly by the growth of Valiant comics. I mean, mm-hmm. they, to me, in some ways represent the decade. Cause here's, um, created by Jim Shooter, who was kind of mostly thought of in the eighties as being a massive success at Marvel for all this complexity. And there's a whole other story. And I actually wrote a book about Shooter for University Press of Mississippi. Um, Shooter brought, uh, Marvel kind of to the state that we're used to seeing it now as this industry leader. He then left. Uh, under uh, complicated circumstances, mm-hmm. created this new company, Valiant Comics, which briefly was the most successful company other than Image in the entire country. I mean, they were selling, they sold 1.7 million copies of uh, Turok Dinosaur Hunter, 800,000 copies of Bloodshot Number 1. I mean, they were as big as it got. Mm-hmm. Um, and his tenure there was also really controversial. He ended up getting either fired or quit. There's a lot of stories around that. And then uh, Valiant continued on, never nearly as successful as they were before, and really limped through um, the 90s to the point where literally the last comics they published were an attempt to recreate their glory days. And so I just think, like, all these stories that kind of pass through this decade, seeing them together like in a year-by-year chronicle, seeing these stories play out, kind of gives you an idea of what it was really like to live in that time and see these stories um happen in real time yeah well it's interesting because i feel like the the main players who kind of have been running comics nowadays uh you know the roots are in the 90s i mean certainly people like yeah. joe casada who was um you know marvel's uh, chief creative officer and actually very um involved in it now i mean you know he, you know, he was first just an artist a top artist and then he became mm-hmm. you know with marvel knights and and we're seeing marvel knights um you know 20th anniversary like there's been all this nostalgia about marvel knights as well so you know a lot of what is old is new again uh, what's been fun about writing this book too is like a lot of the stuff that's become like the established canon of thought is actually not quite as much it proves to be at least more interesting than it first seen it's like marvel knights is a great example of that we all remember Heroes Were Born in 1996 when the image creators came back and did Fantastic Four <laughs> and Iron Man and the legendary bad uh, Rob Liefeld Captain America. Well, that was part of a larger effort by Marvel to kind of cast a net out to have other people create their comics. They were looking for a long time to farm out this work. Um, so they uh, 
really went pretty far down the road of having a Filipino company package a line of about 20 comics for them. Um, they had Brian Polito's Chaos Comics create a miniseries that could have led to them running a whole horror comics line. One of the few that actually came to fruition was Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti, who then were big with event mm-hmm. comics, creating um, this this kind of new subline. And for whatever reason, happened to catch fire, probably because of Kevin Smith on Daredevil. Um, and it just became this thing that kind of built on itself. So, you know, because of like Marvel's uh, problems in the 90s, which are complicated and fascinating, um, it, all, it brought on this kind of next level of success that really we're seeing these days. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, again, I was involved with some of this stuff. You know, I was great friends with Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Casada back in the day. I mean, we were neighbors, and uh, I was neighbors with Joe, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, end with Marvel Comics, and I would run into people on the street and, and you know, visit the office, and which you can't even do anymore. But yeah, you know, listen, right. I, I was on a, I, I had a front row seat for a lot of this stuff. So, you know, my thoughts about it are a bit dramatic, but I, I mean, hearing you talk, <laughs> you know what, there really were some incredible storylines in the mm-hmm. 90s. You know, from mm-hmm. the growth of Image... Uh, to the fall of image, to, you know, the eight rise of the, you know, the death of Superman, um, you know, from Marvel's bankruptcy. I mean, you just had these immense storylines that, that really were larger than the comics themselves sometimes. Yeah, there's a whole book that, uh, about the Marvel bankruptcy that talks about, um, these Wall Street figures basically looting and pillaging, not just Marvel, but card companies and sticker companies and other related industries. Just in this larger and larger attempt to build up their fortunes. Um, and one of the most dramatic scenes that I write about in the book is a scene where uh, the lawyers from, for two different competing uh, financiers are on a train together bound to Delaware to fight for the copyright of Marvel Comics. I mean, it doesn't get more dramatic behind the scenes than that. Right. I think you're talking about Comic Book Wars by Dan Revive. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Yes. A great, a great book. And, you know, also Sean Howe's. Uh, History of Marvel Comics as well, which is really one of the outstanding works of, uh, journalism for, uh, for comics, but, uh, comics history. Um, you know, let me ask you this. Um, like we're talking, I mean, I think when people talk about 90s comics, the first thing they think about is the death of Superman and the rise of image mm-hmm. and X-Men number one, you know, Spider-Man number one, like these comics that were selling millions and millions of copies. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, were these really readers? I mean, what was going on? For those who might not have followed along, tell us what this was really about. <laughs> yeah, which has been another fascinating piece of this because I've been a lifelong comic reader. A lot of this was fueled by the death of the trading card market in America. Um, there's a, a fascinating statistic I ran into, which was that um, in by 1992, something like half of all the card stores in America had died. So they had had a, a boom and bust that coincided basically with the rise of comics. A lot of the guys who were selling cards moved into selling comics, which actually explains a lot of the love for, for uh, trading cards inside comics, why people like Tops moved into selling comics. Um, and they kind of fueled the speculative industry. I mean, co- cards were always a speculative industry. People would go out and pick up uh, sets of rookie right, cards and right. hope that one of them would, would make a million um, and that whole group kind of hit comics in the same way. But it was also fueled by stuff like the the death of Superman in particular, which hit people by surprise when it came out, when it, the news broke on a slow news day. And 
you know, the, there's suddenly this massive hope that, uh, you know, people are going to make a million selling these old, these great comics in 40 years, whatever. Not 40 years, I should mm-hmm. say, like four years, more like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think the card market fueled it, but also kind of this just incredible influx of interest in the industry fueled it. And I actually think, like, and this may be a little inside baseball, Heidi, but you remember, like, the Ninja Turtles boom of, of 87 and Absolutely. The black and where, white like, boom, yeah. Exactly. And so, like, everyone thought, if I have a copy of Ninja Turtles number one, I can turn it around next year for, you know, $150. So Superman's going to be the same thing, and Nightfall's going to be the same thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and so it's just the opposite, right? I mean, there's, right. I literally had a friend post yesterday that were still giving away copies of X-Men number one on Halloween this year. Oh my God, wow. Well, now, X-Men number one sold, what was it, six million copies? yeah, you can't even imagine it. And, but there were reports, I mean, yeah, people, the retailers of the time did not sell these comics. I mean, they had skids of them, you know? I mean, just as quickly as, um, it all built up, it all just fell apart. And, and, you know, Valiant also, like their, uh, Death, what was it? Deathmate. Oh God, Deathmate. Deathmate, yeah. Yeah. What, did you cover? Deathmate's. Can you talk a little bit about oh, Deathmate? Yeah. How, can, how can you not talk about Deathmate in a book like this? So basically, Image was all, all surrounded around artwork. Art, the artwork of their creators was a big, the big feel for it. And they were also kind of like a lot of the indie creators now where sometimes they spend a little more time having fun than actually creating their comics. Valiant was much more a story-driven company and much more around kind of what Jim Shooter always called fundamental storytelling. So the executive... Uh, one of the one of the main executives from Valiant came up with this brilliant idea of why don't we do a crossover with Image? It'll help both companies, and we'll build up even more uh, audience for both for both. Uh, and so they came up with this crossover event called Deathmate. Smartly, they didn't assign issue numbers to Deathmate, so they had Deathmate Black, Deathmate Yellow, Deathmate Red. Um, the Valiant issues all came out on time. Which was fantastic for retailers because I sold them hundreds of thousands of copies and everyone was <laughs> relatively satisfied with them. The image books, they didn't do quite as well. Uh, the, the Jim Lee issues came, came out, I think a couple issues, a couple months late, but the Rob Liefeld issues in particular, for which, you know, invest, uh, the retailers had invested, you know, enough to buy six to eight hundred thousand copies. Jesus. This never, never came out, never came out. So they had all the money just sitting there waiting to be spent. Or waiting to, 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 yeah, invested basically that was never paying off. So there's a wonderful story that I found in a couple places where, um, Bob Layton, who was one of the editors at Valiant Comics, actually went out to California and camped out on Rob Liefeld's doorstep to go and bug him to produce the comic. Knocked on the door and said, Rob, we gotta do this. And then Rob proceeds to kind of knock it out in a few hours flat. And they, <laughs> there's the comic. Wow. Yeah, well, it's funny because uh, I think Rob himself would admit that the 90s were not his best self, and perhaps, <laughs> and, you know, now he's become kind of this, uh, you know, like, beloved figure, you know, he's kind of like our William Shatner or something. And, um, you <laughs> I know, love that. Yeah, yeah, you know. But, like, I always think of him as, like, being, like, a 19-year-old basketball player who suddenly has a $10 million contract. Right. 
Uh, it takes an incredible amount of self-discipline to keep playing the game at your at your best instead of just going out and enjoying yourself. And, yeah. you know, I think it's a natural reaction. I mean, they sold 2.3 million copies of X-Force number one or something, yeah. and then like 900,000 copies of Blyfeld's Youngblood. You literally had checks for like a half million to a million dollars in the bank. Yeah. So, you know, where's the motivation at that point to go out and produce everything month after month? You want to, if you're 19, 20... Even in your early 20s, you wanted to get out and enjoy yourself. Of course, of course. I remember. <sighs> you saw know, this all firsthand. Oh, right? I did. I, yeah. Oh, boy, did I. <laughs> well, some stories best left in the <laughs> 90s. But, um, yeah, I remember going to WonderCon and uh, Extreme Studios had just launched. You know, they all had baseball jackets that match. And they were just a bunch of kids. You know, they were kids. And, um, you know, we, I remember we were going up on the roof and, and you know, Flying paper airplanes, or maybe they were balsa wood, balsa wood airplanes off the roof. Uh-huh. You know, and I mean, the people who were there now, I mean, they'd all remember it. I mean, nothing too bad happened, but you know, uh, like Eric Stevenson, who you know now runs Image Comics, and Matt Hawkins, who runs Top Cow, and you know, all of these people who actually did, you know, are still around and and um, you know learned a lot, uh, uh, learned what to do, and I think even more so what not to do. Um, <laughs> what not to do, yeah. exactly. Because, yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways that the story of the 90s is the comics industry growing up, you know, uh, it hit its adolescence at the time of the death of Superman, the rise of Image Comics, um, kind of went through some of the stuff that we all went through when we were in our early 20s, too, where, you know, we had good times and definitely our bad times, mm-hmm. you know, had the metaphorical one of like waking up next to the toilet. Um, and then kind of shaped up because by the end of the decade, I mean, there were some great comics coming out, mm-hmm. um, and, and that really showed like a progression in the medium through image and through other companies as well. I mean, by, by the end of the decade, we had stuff like Planetary and the Authority and the Heroes Reborn books, uh, the Heroes Return books, excuse me, that were, um, some of the best books of the, of the decade. I mean, right. the Marvel Knights books were, you know, really stand up, uh, mm-hmm. like the Marvel Knights Black Widow series, for example, just stands up next to, Anything that's even produced now. Yeah, and I mean, just to, I mean, uh, just to be uh, honest or you know clear with our listeners, I think your book uh, focuses mostly kind of on what we'd think of as the you know superhero comic shop audience. I mean, it, you do cover indie comics. I mean, you mentioned Bone earlier. I mean, at the very same time, there was a very robust and obviously some utterly incredible you know, independent comics were being done. I mean, it was also the rise of Chris Ware and um, Julie Doucet and, and um, you know, a lot of amazing stuff was being done in the indie comics as well. Yeah, we do talk about that a bit. Um, it's really more driven by the market size as much mm-hmm. as anything. But, yeah, I mean, there's interesting stories like Fantagraphics, for example, who mm-hmm. at that time especially were publishing Love and Rockets and Hate, which was a surprising success. Mm-hmm. Um, uh had to move into porn comics to stay alive. So we talk about the early part of the decade. And then interestingly, when the internet really started to rise by the late nineties, that whole side of their business started falling apart again. And so, um, <laughs> right. And so we, we talk a bit about how they had to end up canceling a good portion of their line and firing a lot of their staffers too. So and then we get into it a good amount. I'm looking at a page right now where we have a nice cover from fem force, for example. Oh God. So, um, we try it. I, I tried really hard to keep us not just focused on on the superhero stuff. Right. Um, and, well, and 
And, oh. you know, one of the most interesting stories, sorry, Heidi, mm, no, uh, go, go ahead. No, 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 you go on. One of the most interesting stories, yeah. Well, so, like, the most, one of the most interesting stories, you know, we call ourselves the American Comic Chronicles. We at least veered into the Canadian comics as well. And, of course, you know the story of Dave Sim and oh, yes. Service 181 and Men Are Light and Women Are the Void um, and how that basically turned this whole self-publishing industry upside down. Because at one point he was really the thought leader. Mm-hmm. And, in yeah. fact, amazingly, Service 181 also has a preview of Strangers in Paradise, which is maybe the most female-friendly comic <laughs> of its time. Wow, so true. Yeah, you know what? Um, I'd forgotten that. I don't think anybody would dare buy a copy of Service 181 anymore to, to find that <laughs> out. You know, you'd have to be pretty brave to broach you know break it open and see that but um yeah i'd actually forgotten actually you're right i'm gonna quote you because it was the story of the comics industry in the late 1990s was low sales and 1999 represents the nadir of that tale the it does yeah which is also when i started working in uh mainstream comics and, um, you know, certainly my timing couldn't have been worse. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just came in, you know, I started working at DC and I'll, I'll be honest, it was just like a terrible time, you know? I mean, you mentioned Grant Morrison's JLA. I mean, that was the best selling book in the industry and it sold like 75,000 copies a month or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a great site and uh, I, you probably know it, you can link it to it in the show notes, but it, it's interesting how it, it talks about month to month sales. And yeah, by 1999, there were, I think, there were a handful of comics selling, selling over 100,000, which is fascinating, too, because here we are today where no comic sells over 100,000. In some ways, we're a lot healthier. In some ways, we're not. Yeah. Well, we opened up a new market. You know, the bookstore market opened up. Yes. And, yeah. I mean, that's really what came in. I mean, you mentioned... You know, at Publishers Weekly on, a, on this podcast, we do concentrate on talking about the bookstore market, which was really... Um, Kind of spearheaded by the rise of manga, obviously. I mean, certainly manga is what got caught people's mm-hmm. eyes at Borders, and you know, Barnes and Noble was uh, just had a very smart buyer. But you know, quite rightly, you also mentioned Spider-Man and X-Men, and you know, the movies, and they really did start a whole new wave of interest in this material. Although, once again, sure. as people love to point out, you know, Marvel's film renaissance started with Blade uh, in the '90s, starring right. Wesley Snipes. Um, right, and they had no, they had no expectation of that movie either. It was just kind of a, uh, they saw it as a B movie and it happened to turn into something massive. Yeah. Um, talking about trade paperbacks too, the other key player there is, um, Vertigo Comics, which oh, was founded in 1993, of course. of course, by the great Karen Berger. And by the mid to late 90s, I mean, they had proved the viability of their graphic novel market with Sandman and Transmet and 100 Bullets and, and all the other series that came out. And they're a big part of allowing, like, the American colored comics to really move into that bookstore right. market. Yeah, and I mean, certainly Vertigo at the time had, had captured the college-age comics reading market in a way that very few things, you know, very few comics had, really since the early... Uh, Marvel comics. You know, people forget that Stanley yeah. was, uh, you know, he toured colleges in the 60s. You know, he was really, Marvel comics were really popular among the college age kids of that time. And, you know, Stanley was already a superstar 50 years ago, which is kind of mind boggling. Uh, but yeah, Vertigo definitely, uh, right. definitely led that. You know, one of the other observations I've had, um, and you know, again, as someone who was in the trenches, I mean, I spent the 90s editing comics, so, you know, this was my, my heyday and my salad days, uh, all rolled uh-huh. up in one. Um, and I edited Kins Comics, and boy, did you get blowback if you went into a bunch of comics publishing execs and said that you wanted to do comics for kids. 
you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, I mean, it, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, girls didn't read comics, ha, ha, ha. But, I mean, it would be like, oh, I don't, I don't know if kids read comics. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. if we could sell comics to kids. I mean, just this total crap, okay? And a uh, little, you know, but but what they were doing in the early 90s by cutting off the younger readers was what happened in the, at the end of the 90s. You know, they choked off their feeder system. And that's why, you know, you had this, this nader, the nader of comic sales, I think, in, in so many ways. Um, but what was kind of, I don't know if you mentioned this all in your book, but I, I do think, thank God for both Marvel and DC, what was keeping their characters alive as much as anything was... Uh, the X-Men cartoon and Batman mm-hmm. the Animated Series. I really think Batman the Animated Series might be the best superhero thing that came out of the 90s. I mean, that still stands up. It's still mm-hmm. just as wonderful as ever. And, yeah, I mean, both it and X-Men were just massive successes, and that was the feeder system that brought people into comics. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't a ton of kids' comics for them. I mean, there was a Batman, uh, the Batman Adventures comic, and there was an attempt to launch a, a Spider-Man uh, comic based on the the Spider-Man cartoons, were, which weren't very good at the time. But um, yeah, it was always a gap in the industry. Uh, one of the interesting things that we talk about a little bit, it's more of a 2000 story, is how Bone suddenly kind of gained a foothold in the in the kids market around 99. And uh, that started to fuel a, a whole other side of, of the collecting um, I got kids interested in stuff that was really more kid oriented. Uh-huh, right. But, but yeah, your point is totally right on because like, yeah, I talked to a lot of friends who are, um, just starting to read comics in the early nineties and early teens and they totally latched onto the early image heroes. You know, the stuff that I looked down on like brigade and, and the other junky, uh, early image books, um, were actually their, their favorite stuff because uh-huh. it was just so loud and silly and crazy. And I think that's a lot of the love that, People feel for life, L too. It's like it's almost like the stuff that kids were drawing in their own journals or their, you know, their their uh, notebooks at school. Right, and of course, Marvel, uh, you know, despite their turmoil, uh, was actually putting out some of its most enduring stories. You know, they um, well, actually, I was going to say DC as well, but um, uh, but you know, Marvel had the Infinity Gauntlet stories that Jim Starlin did that you mm-hmm. know now have turned into the Avengers: Infinity War, which is mind-boggling, and uh, right. also. The X-Men. I mean, you cannot tell the story of the 90s without talking about the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the, the big event for the X-Men, of course, is the 8.1 million copies selling uh, Jim Lee Spider-Man, or Jim Lee X-Men, excuse me. But um, all through the decade, um, under uh, uh, Fabian Nicieza and um, Rob Light, uh, excuse me, Scott Lobdell, um, you know, there's one great, one great crossover after the next, to the point where, um, you know, they actually kind of got rid of all the X-Men for a period mm-hmm. of three months. Right. Moved them into an alternate universe, which, like, really excited fans. I mean, that was actually the best-selling uh, set of comics that month was uh, when they moved into the Age of Apocalypse. Right, right, so They right. managed to keep that stuff relevant and interesting to fans. Yeah, Age of Apocalypse, of course, was another... Um, you know, huge event that people, that really drew people into comics, actually. I think, I think, you know, now we joke about just how complicated the X-Men are with all their different continuities and everything. Um, but you know, it was a bit simpler then and, you know, these big events really were keeping people interested in these characters and getting people interested in the characters, you know, after they had seen the, the animated series, which was, which was very popular at the time and, and really kept the, 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 you know, the key X-Men characters. Um, you know, it built a solid fan base for them, which I think later, 
was it you know came out in the the movies so you know i mean yeah, yeah. they did a, they did a lot of smart things with them i mean when they took uh when uh wolverine lost his adamantium skeleton for example i mean that totally captured people's imagination what the heck what's going on i gotta read this i don't know what's gonna happen right right now let me ask you what um, do you think is the biggest misconception about 90s comics I think it's that they were all crap. <laughs> I, people tend to look down on them and say, if it came out in the 90s, it's not good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of great stuff, even among the most commercial material. I mean, Mark Waite's Flash has, has survived the test of time, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, earliest Valiant books are, are really very good, solid comic storytelling. Um, Batman No Man's Land from 1999 is a, just a wonderful Batman storyline. I was kind of blown away by how much I enjoyed that. There's just a lot of good stuff that came out in that decade. Yeah. It's not all hollow foil. It's not all, um, you know, uh, uh, imitators of Rob Liefeld. There's a lot of great stuff. Um, the other is that if you follow the creators and not the books, you'll find yourself just really happy. I mean, people <laughs> like, if you're a Frank Miller fan, he did a whole range of material, you know, from, from, uh, uh, Daredevil Man Without Fear all the way to Sin City, which is a big break for him. Uh-huh. Um, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of really solid work in there. And also, if you're willing to dig, you're gonna find a lot of, like, fascinating, odd relics. Uh-huh. Like, there's a whole line of Clive Barker comics called the Razorverse, uh-huh. Razor Line, excuse me. <laughs> right. Um, which only lasted, like, nine issues each, four titles. They're weird and, like, the strange merging of horror and superheroes, but they're fascinating reading. Um, if you can find them, they're just like they're just like nothing you've ever read in comics before. Right, right. So I mean, it was a pretty ambitious era, and a lot of stuff under the radar is still stands up in different ways, maybe than was intended at the time. Right. Um, if you stay away from stuff like uh, Maximum Clonage or something, <laughs> you're gonna find a lot that's just fun. Right. That's right. Um, yeah, you know, definitely. Well, this is a really good, you know, solid chronology of, of the nineties. And, um, you know, uh, as far as, as far as the best selling comics at the time, it certainly gives you a great overview of, uh, you know, what was what. Now, Jason, you also, uh, now, I mean, I asked you before, you said you were raising kids, but I, I mean, I actually don't know of your background. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess I knew you when you, you took over Comics Bulletin, but I mean, right. you know, are you always been a journalist or a scholar or, you know, what's your deal, man? <laughs> so I was, um, so I actually started the 1990s working for Fanagraphics. I was a uh, editor on Amazing Heroes. Oh, maybe um, we worked died. together then, did we? I don't know. <laughs> I came. I came after you. I came. So it, I graduated college in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved. My my then girlfriend, now wife, and I moved to Seattle shortly thereafter. And um, the first place I went was to the Fanagraphics house in uh, North Seattle. And I'm sure you've been there. You know how oh, run yes. down it is. At that time, it was even more rundown because they had uh, hand printing, you know, the, the printing presses that were all physical. So the the offices stunk of like developer fluid, and there was crap dripping dripping all over the floor. And God knows you would never want to even walk on it on socks because you'd get God knows what diseases. Um, but it was a, just an amazing kind of boiler uh, room to work in. So I worked for for Amazing Heroes during the last four or five years of its existence. Um, and then really got completely out of comics until 2003. I, I'm a, I work in software. I'm a mm. software project manager in, in real life. And um, this has always been something that I was interested, uh, kind of as just a fun little hobby. And I had a nice comic collection. But um, 
I actually got back into comics because an old friend of mine. So uh, when I was a kid, I was, I read a lot of fanzines and stuff and, um, was a contributor to a whole, a whole group of those. Um, one of the friends I had back in the day was a guy named Clifford Meth, who you probably know. Mm-hmm, of course. Um, and, um, for whatever reason, we'd gotten back in contact and he was doing a uh, benefit work for Dave Cockrum, who was, uh, at the time fighting to get some ownership of the Marvel characters he created for X-Men. And, um, so he, he looked me up and at that time I was doing web design work. So I created a website for Cockrum and helped on the publicity of that and worked with him to, uh, help Cockrum get some of it, uh, back what he needed to get. And then from there, I kind of developed this taste for getting more involved in comics. So worked uh, for a number of sites as a freelancer from probably 2004 to 2008. And then the former uh, editor-in-chief and publisher of Comics Bulletin, Jason Bryce, reached out to me knowing that I worked as a professional software guy and said, are you interested in taking on Comics Bulletin? So I ran the site for seven or eight years at that, uh, I guess, altogether. Um, at its peak, we had a staff of about 40 freelancers. Um, I had assistant editors in the whole ownership chain. And uh, it was a, a lot of fun. It was um, it's a lot of work, as you know, but uh-huh. also – uh, ha- having a small part in setting the daily agenda for comics and driving some great writing and taking part in some, some fantastic writing. Um, I, I was really proud of the reviews that we wrote. Uh, we pride ourselves a lot in the long form writing that we did when I was on the site, as well as like a lot of collaborative writing pieces. Um, of course, you know, Alex Liu, who was fantastic. Haha. <laughs> yes. Um, I stole him away from you. <laughs> you stole him. Away. You're probably able to pay him, which has always uh-huh. been my Achilles. Well, Somehow you've made some money from the site. Well, it took a long time to do that, you know, and, and honestly, until I sold the site to Lion Forge, I was not able to consistently pay people. And okay, but you know, I mean, I paid people. I always say I paid people when I could, you know, yeah. and uh, that wasn't always uh, that wasn't all the time. And um, you know, it was. It's hard though. It's hard, but I mean, you, the site. I mean, the site is still going, and I mean, it interested me because a couple of years ago, I guess it kind of got a new. Like least kind of like a lot of young Tyro writers came in to to work on it with really representing kind of the new I don't know new journalists or whatever you know like Mark Stack yeah. the Mark Stack era so yeah absolutely um, yeah and uh, yeah you know this is this is a double edged sword so um, I always find my my most dependable writers are the people who were in their thirties and forties who had time to devote to this and knew the time they had to give to people like Mark, unfortunately, were just really busy with their thing, with their personal lives. Uh, Daniel Elkin, who is our uh, master small press guy, um, is a high school teacher. And so he's been able to keep up with the small press stuff because he keeps his, uh, He's, he knows where he is at this point in his life. Other people who are younger just have trouble with that kind of, that kind of work. You know, that's um, a very interesting observation. And I never really thought about it before because, you know, for me, it was, you know, granted when I got started, um, I mean, there was no internet and, you know, I always talk mm-hmm. about like, ah, I had to type things up and put them in envelopes <laughs> and we loved it. We loved it. But, you know, I mean, increasingly like talking in a comedy old lady voice isn't even comedy. I mean, it was so long ago, but, right. um, you know, I mean, God, I was so motivated to write all the time. You know, I couldn't yes. not write. And, um, you know, even though I had this strenuous day job, uh, at the Hollywood Reporter, I would come home and I would write and I, you know, wrote my columns and reviews and everything. And, um, you know, 
eventually, because I knew that's what I really wanted to do, and I knew that was the mm-hmm. only way. I wonder also if there being so many other outlets for writing on a minute-by-second basis kind of diverts attention, too. I mean, you know, people are always tweeting, they're Facebooking, they're yeah. Tumbling, every Instagramming, everything. Yeah, that's something I thought about a lot, Heidi, because, like, in 80, in uh, 08, when I took over the site, especially, there were really no other ways to, to share your opinions about comics and other stuff. So we get people's eyes on them. Right. And then, there, then we had the rise of the blog, and then we had Facebook's rise, and then we had Twitter's rise. At this point, like, it's so easy to share your opinion on everything or anything uh-huh. that you don't want to go through the discipline of having to write an essay about something. You just want to tweet out 280 characters about the latest issue of uh, whatever comic you just read, and that's just fine. Whereas, like, uh, they, again, it's like, I don't want to be like you talking about it back in the day, but like, all I wanted to do was write this thousand word essay about this great graphic novel I discovered. Right. And, and try and persuade people to, to pick it up. And I just don't, I think, I think there's still an interest in that, but I also think that, uh, people just are, this, the attention span is shorter and there's so many other places that people mm. look. Yes, it's very true. And, you know, I don't even know how we keep on going, to be honest. But, uh, you know, you know what? We are here there for, at the beat, we are there for the people who still do want to read uh, something with a little bit more substance, you know? And, I mean, there yeah. definitely are people, you know, we'll have some fantastic traffic sometimes. And, um, you know, sometimes you write your best piece and nobody pays attention. But, you know, such is the Internet. No, is Comics <sighs> Bullet? are you still involved with the Comics Bulletin or... I do some freelancing for it. We've moved to a new set of staffers, actually, who are uh, starting to revive it. Um, and so I still check in with them every now and then. Um, I think they ha- they're going their own interesting direction. I'll, I'll have them get in contact with you, Heidi, because um, I think it would be nice to kind of have um, maybe some mentorship for the, the guys as they kind of take it on. <laughs> oh, um, boy. <laughs> I, I, don't th- I don't think their vision is the same as my vision because my always my thought was always I want to str- swim against the stream. So – you know, when when people are writing at that point 140 character reviews, I want to have us produce like 5,000 word reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, like the pieces that I enjoyed the most, I wrote a 5,000 plus word piece on one of Grant Morrison's JLA uh, 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 graphic novels, mm-hmm. and uh, I just enjoyed writing that so much that I almost didn't care who read it. Right. Uh, because it's, it's just like so satisfying to think through your opinion about something. I'm sure that's how you felt when you were writing your essays as well. It's like, it's just so, so freeing in a way. Yeah. To be, to write about this. Yeah. Actually, that's, that's how I feel, felt sitting down every day to write this book too. It's like, I have so much to say about the splite, the spider clone saga. And it's nice to just share all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, it is true. And I, I, I mean, I don't think, uh, Obviously, just as with comics, have a lot of different marketplaces now um, than they did in the 90s. Uh, you know, ideas have a lot of different venues and platforms. Yeah. And, you know, there's just more and more. There's more competition. But I, I don't feel – I still think that there is there is room for the long take. Here and there, a couple people, you know, like Fahrenheit yeah. 451. They're wandering around the campfire, <laughs> reading their – memorizing their book. But <laughs> Well, the other thing – that I, I really would love to see more of is real comics journalism. I mean, it, we just don't get, the, we don't have the long, thoughtful, histor- uh, like journalistic pieces anymore yeah, well, that, that we used to have. Well, and, you know, you fight, the, you fight the same problem that we fought too, which is the amount of time that you invest in it versus the, the number of hits almost doesn't make it worth well, it. Well, it's funny because I also feel like 
like people are so addicted to Twitter now that they don't want to get yeah. any other source of news, you know. And I've even had to. Um, actually, I hope they don't listen to this podcast. But um, you know, I've, I've chided or at least you know discussed with some of my staffers. It's like you know we have a, a Slack like everybody does. And, you know, somebody will come running into the Slack and say, hey, you guys, did you hear what happened? And blah, blah. And then, like, people go on, you know, like, standing around the water cooler gossiping mm-hmm. in the Slack for, like, a while. It's like, you know, is anybody going to write a story about this, you know? <laughs> like, you know, come right. out like Lou Grant. is like, you know, you got spunk, kid. I love sp- I hate spunk. You know, come on. Let's get back to your typewriter. Uh, but, you, you know, it's really funny. I, I, I mean, as long as – and I get that, too. You know, as long as you've shared the news with someone, you've shared it, you know, so you don't have that, 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 um, maybe that drive to, to share it with more people than are in the Slack. But, um, you know, that goes for some people of all ages. It is, it is hard. It's true. It is hard. You know, and, you know, Daniel Elkin is an example of, um, you know, he's such a good writer, and I love his column and all that. And, you know, he applied to – this is really off the record, but I, we're on a podcast, so it's going to be on the record. But, you know, Daniel applied for, to write to me a while ago, and I read his stuff, and I had a very serious criticism about it. And I, I wrote kind of like this really uh, hardcore criticism about it back. And I said, you know, I, I wish you, you'd not do this. It was just kind of the viewpoint that he was using in his writing. Yeah. I didn't think was, was all that great. And – um or was it effective? I thought it wasn't effective. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I think he was, uh, probably I was pretty harsh. And so, you know, we didn't talk for a long time. And then, you know, guess what? He's doing such great work now. And he kind of got rid of that, that, the viewpoint that was, uh, I thought impeding him. And I think anyway, you know, but anyway, I, 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 I was, I was giving him tough love. Because I mm-hmm. saw the the love and the writing skill there, you know. I thought he had so much potential, and uh, so anyway, I'm I'm thrilled to see him doing things. Actually, I'm just you know I think we just need more. I never see anyone as a competitor. I just see yeah. it as a little drip from a faucet that is rising the tide of words on the internet. Yeah, I mean whether it's you or the old comics bulletin or the journal or any of the other sites, women, women write about comics. I'm just happy that they're all out there. Everyone's bringing their own unique viewpoints to them. I mean, I just wish more people were writing more frequently. I, I really miss like David brothers writing about comics decisively. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, um, I agree. I think there was a lot of fantastic people like even 10 years ago who were writing about comics and, uh, and we employed many of them at, at the Publishers Weekly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they are not as prolific now, but you know, David obviously has got on to, I mean, he did incredible things for Image and now he's yeah. doing incredible things for Viz. So it's kind of the, the way of things. And I see yeah, some, exactly. I, I'm, I'm here, I'm here grooming, grooming the kids, you know, I'm, <laughs> I am definitely here trying to work with new writers and, um, and I think new writers want to, you know, educate me as well and to, to what, mm-hmm. what the new, the new ways are of doing things, you know? Like, like again, when I started, people did things on mimeographs, <laughs> you know, and I don't insist on that anymore. So, you know, I'm very open to new methods. <laughs> I still have stacks of those old know, mimeograph scenes around. Uh, but yeah, I think that, that's just such a, uh, I think that's so true, Heidi, because it's like, Every time I, I work with someone who's younger than myself who really uh, has a passion for comics, they teach me so much about just the way they engage with other people and the mm-hmm. way they think about their topics. You know, uh, I, I just think that there's a lot of really smart, insightful 
um, critics and writers about comics and in comics now in some ways more than we've ever had before. It just takes a little more work to find their work. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I'm aiming to do that. Um, And you've written a book, an old-fashioned book. Uh, What is next for for you, Jason? Yeah, I've actually been debating that. So um, I mentioned I have a a book about Jim Shooter, Jim Shooter Conversations, which is out through University Press of Mississippi. Um, I have two more U Press of Mississippi books coming out in 2019. Um, Steve Gerber conversations and Don McGregor conversations. Oh, nice! My all my favorites. So, you know, <laughs> the, the the writers who made little Heidi what she is today. You know, and they made little Jason the way he is today too. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah. So those are real works of pleasure. And then actually, I am. Uh, it's it's funny you talk about writing criticism because I'm really I'm trying to move away from that. I'm doing national na- national novel writing month this month and. Um, I want to sh- uh, work on those muscles, write more fiction and, and uh, move away a little bit from the journalism and just see see how well I can exercise those muscles. Because okay. I have stories I've been itching to tell for years that I've never gotten out. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll be seeing more uh, from you on all those fronts. Uh, um, well, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been a total pleasure, Heidi. All right. Thank you. And as always, there will be more to come.